Are you all ready for another evening of Lord of the Rings, everybody? Yes, yes. Jump up and down if you are ready for another evening. There we go. Some, a few of you are. <laughs> Some of you are sitting down. <laughs> okay. Well, I am Maven. I am the stage manager and sidekick of Narnie and the Loremaster, and I'm here to welcome everybody to class three, I believe we're in. Four. Um, and four, class four. Okay. Gee, time flies. And I want to turn over um, the evening to Lily Rose the um, from the Rangers of the West, and she will get us introduced and going. Oh, I need to undo her. There we go. Lily Rose, you are now getting unmuted right now. There you go. Um, can you hear me? Is this thing on? It yes, is. this thing is now on. <laughs> Good evening, good people of the Middle Earth and beyond. I have the honor to be Lily Rose Prettyfoot, leader of the Rangers of the West, and, and you all have the honor to be, well, you. Rangers of the West Kinship is delighted to host this event with our esteemed visiting scholar, Professor Nardin, from parts way beyond. Rangers of the West is a mix of new recruits and veterans with one common goal. Defend Middle-earth from ruffians, orcs, and things too dire to mention in such polite company. While leaving the Gladden server in fellowship and fun, we are always recruiting new warriors, scholars, and caterers to join our merry band of misfits. Whether you are new to Gladden, a returning veteran, or just a little curious about exploring this world Professor Narnian's introducing in this series, we welcome you. And most of all, we welcome him. Over to you, my good lawmaster. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to see everybody. All right. I am honored to be here on Gladden this week. Looking forward to uh, another fun discussion. It is indeed our fourth class uh, today. And it was funny, you know, sometimes um, there were there were a bunch of people who at the beginning were saying like, wow, it's going to take you like a year to get through the whole Lord of the Rings. And I was like, are you kidding me? There's no way we're going to get through the Lord of the Rings in a, in a year. Um, because, uh, of course, uh, this is our fourth class and we're now just this evening ready to start chapter two. Uh, and I was looking ahead in chapter two, and I'll tell you from the beginning today, I have no aspirations to get further than four pages into chapter two. So we're going to talk about the first four pages of chapter two today. I think we're going to be ended, ending up doing about four weeks minimum on chapter two. So just to, just to, you know, to, to let you know, to warn you about the pace, the blistering pace I am planning to set. Uh, through the Fellowship of the Ring as we go through here. Uh, this is what we're going to do. So again, delighted to be on Gladden. Thank you so much uh, for the introduction, Lily Rose. Uh, uh, great to be here uh, with the uh, Rangers of the West here on Gladden. Looking forward to our field trip at the end of class where we're going we're gonna to go about the Shire a little bit, look at some of the places and things that were mentioned uh, in uh, today's reading. Um, so, all right. We're going to... Um, 
I want to start off by, uh, okay, well, first of all, just a quick reminder. Um, so I hope that th those of you who want to participate in the discussion, be able to make comments to me during class and stuff, please don't forget. Uh, we have a separate Discord channel, the link uh, to which uh, will be posted there on the Twitch chat. So you should be able to enter there uh, if you like. Um, and then that way I can see comments that you want to make on uh, the passages that we're discussing and, uh, uh, you know, answers to questions that I ask and that kind of thing. So, uh, but if you'd like to just kind of sit back and, uh, uh, you know, and watch and listen, uh, obviously you're welcome to do that there on the Twitch chat as well. Um, also, don't forget that if you are watching a recording of this, uh, you know, so if you're watching this either on YouTube or you're hearing it on the audio podcast, first of all, we were having, we had a couple glitches on our uh, podcast. Podcast feeds are so tetchy. Anyway, uh, we were having some issues on our podcast feed. Uh, uh, episode three populated on the Tolkien Professor feed, but no, number one and two did not. Uh, but we figured out why that was happening, and I believe we fixed that problem, so uh, the audio should be available on the Tolkien Professor feed as well. Anyway, if you're watching this asynchronously, uh, or if not, uh, if you're here with me tonight, uh, remember that you can ask questions and uh, uh, sort of continue discussion afterwards on our forums, which is at lotro.mythgard.org. Um, is our discussion board forum where you can go to the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, section and uh, ask whether there's a questions for Narnian uh, segment. And uh, I have drawn from that uh, uh, segment, I have uh, uh, taken a few questions that I wanted to uh, address in particular because I thought that uh, they were really good questions, really interesting stuff. Uh, so I want to start with that. Um, so, uh, so tonight... We're looking at the younger generation of hobbits. That's the name of tonight's class. Um, of course, we're going to be focusing on not only Frodo, of course, we'll be looking at Frodo and the, the, the relationship between Frodo and the other hobbits of the Shire and sort of thinking back, we spent some time looking at Bilbo and his relationship with the other hobbits in the Shire. So we're going to be doing some comparison there to sort of see how things change as the years go by and the generation passes. And then, of course, we're going to be looking at the rematch of the great Gamgee-Sandyman debate uh, that we spent some time with in Chapter 1. Of course, we're going to come back to the second-generation version of that uh, with uh, Sam and Ted Sandyman. So uh, that, is, that, is, that is as much as I hope to accomplish tonight. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's get on. So a couple questions. Uh, first, a, 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 a nice observation uh, by T. Thurston here, which I, I thought was, was, was really good. Uh, he points to the, the, the words outlandish folk. Uh, that, you know, the, they, 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 they use that, that word a couple times. And he says, doesn't outlandish just mean something that is outside our land? So anything outside the Shire would be outlandish, even Buckland. I'm guessing that, that it was this meaning that Tolkien mostly intended. Well, yes, exactly, you see. Uh, but of course, it's, 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 it's a testimony to sort of the overall attitude, right, of the hobbits in the Shire, that anything that is outlandish, which does technically mean anything that is from, you know, from the outlands, right, anything from, that is from outside their land, that word, of course, outlandish, uh, is used, like the connotations of that word, is, it's a synonym for, of course, for the word queer, which Tolkien uses a lot, right? Strange, weird, like anything that comes from, out, from the outland is suspect, strange, right? Think about even the word strange, which I was using as a synonym there, right? Strange just, I mean, the literal denotation of that word is just something you haven't encountered before, right? I mean, either it's familiar or it's strange. But 
just because it's strange in the sense of being unfamiliar doesn't mean it necessarily has to be, you know, weird or queer or outlandish, right? Um, and yet that word has that connotation too. So, so yes, th- there's this sense in which those kind of words, words which is literally denote the 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 sort of, um, you know, the 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 relationship, you know, being outside the little realm of familiarity of the hobbits. Um, but again, the way they use that sort of shows their parochial uh, outlook. So I thought that was a that was, that was sort of a, a, a good observation by T. Thurston there. Um, uh, Nick Palazzo was saying, is it possible to conclude that the first few chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring were written, were written by Bilbo, to some degree based on Frodo's account, with Frodo taking over later on? It would certainly explain the shift in tone. Um, we'll kind of get some more into detail on this later on. I, I want to just kind of acknowledge this for now. Um, the answer is kind of yes, um, but um, not much, really. I mean, if you think about it, of course, not much of the later chapters really, uh, by later, I mean everything past chapter one, is really very readily attributable uh, to Bilbo um, for reasons that we'll see in 2019 when we're looking at the uh, Return of the King. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean... I. I think from what we learn, especially at the end of The Lord of the Rings, um, that we're meant to understand that the vast majority, like almost all of The Lord of the Rings, was originally written uh, by Frodo. But even that, you know, even if we could see, you know, the actual break or sort of remnants of passages written by Bilbo sort of still kind of lingering or shining through what, uh, what Frodo wrote... Even there, uh, the textual history of the Lord of the Rings, as it's given to us, is 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 more complicated than that. It's not like we're reading a direct translation of Frodo's account. We're reading a translation of a copy of a you know. So it's it's uh, it's it's not going to necessarily be um, not not necessarily going to be that simple. Uh, so can we? Ascribe the differences of you know the shifts in tone to that. Not really, I don't think, because it's not really neat enough that way. I don't think it really works out quite that way. So uh, anyway, so those, so 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 that's that. Now I wanted to uh, thank Matt DeForest. Thank you, Doctor DeForest, for your uh, uh, your defense of my position last time. You may remember that last time I I I, I so, sort of. Uh, flippantly and uh, uh, and rashly uh, said that Bilbo was the only one who ever gave up the ring, and then you guys immediately pounced on me and were like, "What about Sam? What about Tom Bombadil?" And I kind of like I kind of like waved the the white flag and ran away because uh, I, I didn't want to get too distracted talking about that. Um, but uh, uh, Matt DeForest's post uh, in Matt DeForest's post, he explained exactly what I was thinking. He says he's been thinking about uh, that statement. Uh, that Bilbo's the only person to willingly give up the ring. While I quite enjoy the humor inherent in seeing the possible exceptions come in, I think that his original c- claim is the correct one. Thank you, Matt. Uh, yes, we do see others hand the ring over, Gandalf, Sam, and Tom Bombadil being the three mentioned during Tuesday's class. That admitted, these three never claimed the ring. They held it for a moment. They never asserted ownership. The rest of this list, in order, did. And then he goes through all of the people who ever had the ring in their possession, um, pointing out, of course, like those people who actually laid claim to the ring, even only briefly, like Diagol, Smeagol's friend, right, claimed the ring, right? You know, I'm going to keep it, he says, before Smeagol strangles him. Um, so so everybody, everybody else who, who, who really claimed it for their own. Now, again, this does, uh, goodness, as I said briefly last time, I would be the very last person on earth 
to undervalue Sam's good qualities. And what Sam does with the ring and handing the ring back to Frodo is very, very significant, but it's not the same significance as Bilbo's handing over the ring to Frodo for exactly the reason uh, that Matt DeForest very, uh, very, very clearly explains. I only gave you a portion of his quotation. He goes on to, or his, uh, his post, he goes on to cite lots of really great examples and everything. So uh, uh, anyway, because that's exactly the key difference. Um, what Sam did, I get the, the, the great virtue of what Sam did was essentially not claiming the ring, right? Um, for him to, to carry it for a very short time without claiming it, right? Without ever thinking of it or calling it his own, right? Um, and that's a big deal, but it's not the same big deal uh, as with Bilbo. Bilbo had claimed it. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's mine, I tell you, and I'm going to keep it, he says. And yet somebody who is in that state has owned the ring for decades. Right. Who still voluntarily chooses to give it up. That is wholly unprecedented in ring history. And that's what I was that's what I was pointing to. And I was trying to emphasize um, uh, uh, trying to emphasize what a huge deal it was uh, when Bilbo gave up the ring, which is what we were looking at last time. Um, uh, good, good. Um, uh, interesting. Uh, sorry, just a quick comment on the, uh, just a, a, a returning for a second to the outlandish comment. Um, Archimago uh, was um, was just pointing out that the Shire Hobbit's regional prejudice seems to increase not just with distance, but specifically easterly distance. Uh, at least we never hear that anyone thinks those Mickle Delving Hobbits uh, are queer. Is this perhaps a recognition of the ominous reputation of the East, or perhaps it's simply due to proximity to the river, the old forest, etc. I don't know, Archimago. I mean, on the one hand, I kind of suspect that it mostly has to do with the fact that the hobbits that we meet in the story talk about things to the east more, right? I, I mean, presumably the hobbits way out, you know, in the distant west farthing are, 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 are at least as queer as the people in Buckland, right? Um, but uh, it's just that they don't come up because there's this like eastward orientation of the um of the story right you know where 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 the story starts in hobbiton and you know and moves on towards buckland and 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 off beyond towards Bree and beyond that way um so that's the direction that we hear about most because that's where sort of the narrative uh focused but i i i sort of i don't see any necessary reason to think that they would distrust i mean i would they distrust the people of Mickle Delving? Um, would they distrust them less than they distrust the Bucklanders, for instance? I think yes, there, because there we have, you know, Buckland is just different, right? It, it crosses the border, right? The, the, the Bucklanders cross a line, and that line is the river, right? Um, so that makes them substantively different than hobbits who merely live in another town at a fair distance, right? Um, I mean, there's something decidedly queer about the Brandy Bucks to go live on the, you know, uh, living on the wrong side of that, of, of the Brandywine River, right? There must be something weird about you just to, like, lead you to do that in the first place, not to mention the kind of impact that it's going to have on you living on the other side of the river and right, right up against the old forest, right? Uh, so, so yeah, so, I mean, I think that we can, we can see that. But, um, you know, uh, remember that to... Um, uh, to farm a maggot, you know, folks are queer out Hobbiton way, 
right? So when he's looking out to the West, which is, you know, obviously West from him, he thinks the Hobbiton folk are queer. So I think that gives us every reason to think that everybody in the Shire thinks that everybody who lives in towns, you know, further than like 10, 15 miles away are, are, are pretty strange, right? I think the, the parochialism seems to be pretty general uh, as far as that uh, is, uh, is concerned. Um, um, yeah, yeah, Matt, exactly. Good, Matt is, uh, is uh, with us here this evening and he's pointing us exactly. I would put Sam in the category of the people who, who resist the ring, right? Resist taking the ring. Um, I, I do think he has more in common with, with Aragorn and with Faramir uh, and with Gandalf and with, uh, well, sort of Galadriel um, than he does with, with Bilbo in that, in that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. See, see, uh, Bielver, we, we, the Shire, we don't ever see the Shire Hobbits. I don't think they ever mention Oatbarton. I mean, it's on the map, but I don't think it ever comes up in the story. So we don't know, but, but, but I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would. Oatbarton is really far up in the North. So absolutely. I mean, the folks have got to be queer up there, right? I mean, like it kind of goes without saying. Um, good. Okay. So last, last point, uh, from Joe Ursick. Uh, he says, last session you covered Bilbo's struggle over giving up or keeping the ring. To what extent do you think that his yes-knowing foreshadows the Smeagol-Gollum personality conflict that we see later? Is this an early-stage sign of the same transition starting to occur in Bilbo, or does it just reflect his internal struggle against the hold of the ring? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> is it an early-stage sign of the same transition starting to occur in Bilbo? Yes. Does it just reflect his internal struggle against the hold of the ring? Yes. Yes, exactly. I, 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 I th- I th- Joe, I think that's a great observation. Um, of course, we, we, and I, I didn't draw attention to this last time, Joe, so I was really glad that you brought this up. Um, we see those sort of two sides of Bilbo, right? There, he does see, you know, he, he himself is on some level conscious of it, right? I, I don't seem to be able to make up my mind. Isn't that odd now, right, when he sees that he you know, intended to do something with one part of his mind, but the other part of his mind didn't want to do it. Um, one thing that I would say kind of cautiously here, um, one has to be a little bit careful. Beware of reading too much Andy Circus into the Gollum of the Lord of the Rings. Please understand I don't say that slightingly. Um, the, the way that Peter Jackson handled and Andy Serkis performed Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films is one of my favorite elements of the film. I think it works incredibly well. It is awesome, but it's awesome in a different way than Gollum is in the book. The, the, the way that Gollum's kind of multiple personality thing happens in the film is, I would argue, substantively different than the way that Gollum is depicted in the book. Again, I'm not saying that as a as a as a, as an insult or a slight to the film. I think the way that it it is that has always been high on my list of if I had to pick changes that they made to the film that I really that they made to the book that I really really like, like you know the places where they've changed the story, but I love the way they've changed the story. I think it's really really successful. That's the top of my list. I love the thing that they do. The whole like kind of like the, you know, the leave now and never come back thing. Love it. Love that bit uh, with Gollum. But that's not in the book. And we don't see that happening in that same way in the book. And if we, 
if you have Andy Serkis's Gollum and the particular ways in which Andy Serkis's Gollum talks to himself, if you have that in your head, that you have that as your model really firmly in your head when you come to Gollum in the book, I would argue that you're going to make some mistakes. That is, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to see, you're just going to draw some conclusions that I think are not really there. It doesn't work exactly the same way uh, in the book. So we need to be kind of open to that. So with that said, as a kind of uh, general disclaimer for talking about the whole Smeagol Gollum personality conflict, um, keeping that in mind, yes, I think that the, I think that that's a really fascinating point. And I think that the division that we can see within Bilbo's mind um, is parallel to, not the same as, but I think it's really interesting and I think totally non-coincidental um, that we see him starting off in that direction, right? Part of his mind saying yes, part of his mind even beginning to call it precious, right? And that's the real giveaway that I think we're totally, if you need justification for thinking of that, you know, for, for, for making that parallel, you know, his his the fact that he himself and Gandalf overtly and explicitly make that parallel, you know, makes it, uh, uh, makes it pretty clear. So, uh, so yes, I do think that that's, that that's happening, but at the same time, I think it does also, Joe, not, I, I wouldn't say, or I think it does also reflect his internal struggle against the hold of the ring. I think that that's one of the things that, um, that we can, I, I that's one of the ways that I would explain it, right? The ring seems to have a personality. The ring does seem to be, in some sense, sentient. In what sense is going to be really interesting to watch, right? To watch uh, that develop. I think watching the development of the ring as a character is one of the things that's going to be really fascinating to do as we continue to read through The Lord of the Rings really carefully as we've been doing. Um, but I will say at the beginning, I do think that the ring has a personality and sentience in some way that seems to be part of the picture. And... Um, at least that's certainly the way that Gandalf's going to talk about it. We'll look at that soon. Uh, maybe even next week. Who knows? Um, but uh, anyhow, um, since that's the case, it's interesting to me, uh, though, that sort of the other side of it is that the ring doesn't have an active personality. That is, it doesn't, it's not like it speaks to people. Like, that's would be a possibility, right? Like the, the, the ring bearer hears a voice in their mind and they're like talking back and forth with the ring. Might have happened that way, but it doesn't happen that way, right? The ring's interactions with people are far more subtle than that. It's not just a matter of um, it's not just a matter of the people who are um, who are interacting with the ring or having the ring interact with them because they're wielding it. Um, it's not just a matter of them being uh, uh, you know having a dialogue with the ring. Their own mind is being influenced um, and guided by the ring. And so that being the case, what we see emerging seems to be the pattern that we see both in Gollum and in Bilbo to some extent is that we see them begin to kind of split into two personalities. It's not exactly them interacting with the ring. It's like the part of them which is being strongly influenced by the ring and the part of them which is not, right? Um, and in Bilbo, those two things are in direct conflict, right? Still. With Gollum, they were not. Um, you know, with Gollum, his two halves would sometimes disagree with each other. They had different priorities and different personalities, uh, di different personality traits to some extent, but they, they weren't in conflict with each other. You know, it wasn't a yes, no thing, right? Um, so anyway, that's, that's, 
Um, but I think it's really cool to be looking at Bilbo and the, the stuff that we were uh, exploring last time with uh, uh, Bilbo's own awareness of his sort of peculiar mental condition and the way that he flares up and the influence of Gandalf, right? And again, I think that what Gandalf does there when Gandalf exerts, Gandalf isn't just threatening him, right? Gandalf isn't just exerting his power. Um, he's not just intimidating Bilbo. He's exerting his power. And what he is exerting his power for is, I, I, my theory, based on our discussion last time, he is intervening between Bilbo and the ring. Um, he is, is helping to break the ring's control over him to free Bilbo's will to enable him to make the free choice to let it go. Where left to himself, he probably just would not have the strength. It just wouldn't be possible because the ring would be too strong for him. Again, notice how the ring even has like motor control to some extent, right? I mean, even after he makes that decision and he puts the envelope back up on the shelf and then jerks his hand back, right? Uh, and so that the ring, the fact that the envelope falls to the floor showing that he just, he's not, his whole brain is not in control of his motor functions, right? That's the level of control that the ring seems to have over him and even over Frodo as well, who can't toss the ring into the fire though he wants it to, right? Um, anyway, okay. So let's, uh, um, uh, let's, uh, and good, yeah, JJ, exactly. Uh, JJ says, we know from later in the chapter, uh, Bilbo didn't even really suspect the ring of having any part in things showing how subtle it must be. Exactly. Exactly. It's, and that's, um, that's, uh, a, a stable pattern, right? That we know that, um, the, uh, um, when the ring works on people, it doesn't, the people don't generally even know. Uh, that that's uh, that that's happening. Um, okay, cool. All right. So thanks again for questions and comments there on the discussion board. Again, don't forget, especially people who are uh, watching or listening asynchronously, to go to lotro.mythgard.org uh, for the uh, uh, for the discussion board there, and uh, uh, we can uh, we'll, we'll we'll continue this discussion in the weeks to come. All right. Um, uh, really good questions coming in uh, on Discord about the ring and its communication and, you know, sort of Sauron's communication with it. Sarah Lagarde, I see your question there. I'm going um, uh, I'm gonna not answer it right now, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> uh, that is to say, uh, we need to gather way more data before we can, before we can talk about that. Um, but I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, the, the, the sort of the relationship not only between the ring and the wielder, but between the ring and Sauron is a really interesting question. And it's one of the things that I want to, that I want to kind of gain, you know, be actively uh, collecting data for uh, as, we, uh, as we move forward. Exactly, Sarah. Yeah, we don't, we don't have any real clues uh, in Chapter 1 and the first four pages of Chapter 2, which is where we are right now. So it is the one thing I know is going to require a lot of patience uh, from you as we move through the Lord of the Rings as slowly as we are. There'll be always lots of times we're going to want to jump to like big conclusions or, or to be asking big questions. And I'm just going to have to be like, I'm going to have to ask you to wait for a year and a half on that one. And we'll come back to that as soon as we can. Um, and, uh, you know, but all I can say is we'll totally, we'll totally get there. I promise we'll get there. Uh, my goal is to leave uh, fairly few stones unturned here. With that in mind, let us start chapter two. 
All right. Um, now, I, I'm not starting at the beginning of chapter two, in part because we did the beginning of chapter two before the very first paragraph of chapter two. Um, I, I want to talk about Frodo and his relationship to the rest of the Shire, but what interests me even more, and what, what I really wanted to start with here, was the, the larger picture change that happens not only in the Shire, but to the world around it. And this seems to me a really, really big deal, right? Um, we have evidence, Frodo has evidence, of the world changing around him, right? But now Frodo often met strange dwarves of far countries, seeking refuge in the west. They were troubled, and some spoke in whispers of the enemy and of the land of Mordor. That name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories, but it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council, only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The Dark Tower had been rebuilt, it was said. From there the power was spreading far and wide, and away far east and south there were wars and growing fear. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons, and there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all these, but they had no name. Okay. Um, now, notice the sort of the kind of the kind of background that we're being given here, right? Now, remember, we're at the beginning of chapter two, right? We don't know anything about this either, right? Um, we know less than the hobbits do about the land of Mordor, right? This is our first ever introduction to the land of Mordor. Um, no, wait, that's not true, actually. Um, if we are good and thorough readers of our book, uh, even if we skip the prologue, which I'm, I'm okay for us to do, right? Because we're going to come back to it at the end. We will have gotten the land of Mordor. Where, where do we as readers, where have we encountered the land of Mordor? Can you think of, of uh, what we should know it from? Exactly, Gilguir. Exactly. From the poem at the beginning. Because, of course, we would never skip the poems, right? And before chapter one, we get, as an epigraph, the ring poem. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, right? Um, and that poem, of course, twice gives us in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, right? One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Um, by the way, you notice how Tolkien uses his a shift in poetic meter to make the end of that poem super creepy, right? Um, the In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, lines are trochaic. That is, the, the beat pattern is stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Hear that? And then, but then after that, so it's, it's, it's emphatically trochaic, but then the actual lines that are carved on the ring itself, right? Remember, that's a quotation from Sauron himself. That's what Celebrimbor overheard uh, Sauron saying as he was forging the ring, right? One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them uh, in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Hear the difference in the rhythm? 
right? In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, trochaic. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, is iambic, right? So Sauron's words are a creepy iambic uh, in this, in this uh, very regular uh, rhythm as he's on his forge, right? One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. Um, and then, but then it shifts back to the sort of frame, right? In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. It's so creepy. I love it. But anyway, that's what we get, right? Um, that's so, so we do know some things about Mordor. Let's review. What do we know about Mordor, right? Um, we know that shadows lie there, right? And that presumably that's where the binding goes on, right? Uh, that's where you'll be brought, uh, when you're ruled by the Dark Lord, right, and found by the Dark Lord, you'll be brought by the Dark Lord and bound. Uh, and presumably all of these things, the end destination of all these things is the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, right? Um, and yes, Gilgalir, we have the Dark Lord on his dark throne. Yes, yes, uh, in the land of Mordor. So we have it associated with the Dark Lord, his dark throne, uh, shadows lying. And I, I, by the way, I just love that, for, you know, where the shadows lie. What a perfect line that is. Um, it's like, it's not just where like, the shadows lurk or it's not where the shadows are. Like they lie there, right? Like they're just waiting for something, right? Who knows? Like the shadows, I, I just love the verb lie uh, about the shadows. Um, uh, anyway, so... Okay, so so those are the rumors we as readers have heard, right? So when the land of Mordor is invoked, it's not a complete blank for us. We don't know that much. We don't know who the Dark Lord is. We don't, you know, know much. But it doesn't sound good, right? The the finding and the binding and the and all that stuff sounds sounds kind of bad. Um, but um, yeah, and uh, 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 Raven King, yes. Uh, mentioning the binding by the ring with no explanation is just fantastically creepy. I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. So, we have some background here. And so, maybe we have almost the same kind. Well, no, we don't have almost the same background as the Hobbits. Because notice what we're told. Um, it's like a shadow in the background of their memories. Okay. So, the name means something to them. The name of the land of Mordor means something to them. They have memories associated with it, but not clear ones, right? Like a shadow in the background of their memories, right? Um, which is a neat image, actually, right? They don't have a memory of it, but they have memories. And the backdrop of those memories contains the shadow of Mordor, right? Which is kind of cool. So what are the memories of which the backdrop, of which part of the backdrop to those memories is the land of Mordor? Well, there are legends of the dark past, right? So there are legends. So this is where the, 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 the hobbits seem to have some advantage of us. We've never read any legends. All we have is a poem, which is superlatively creepy, but we don't uh, have any legends, right? We've never heard any narratives about this. And they seem to have some legends which uh, include or, uh, you know, in some way allude to the land of Mordor. But there's more, right? They've also heard more recent news, right? More current events. Um, 
It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. Now, note the implications of that. Remember, this is, of course, one of two, refer two direct references to the Hobbit, right, uh, in this passage. Um, it's a reference to the Hobbit, of course, because you'll recall not only the fact that Gandalf, that we learn that Gandalf and the other wizards in the White Council uh, drove the necromancer out of Dol Guldur, out of his, his tower in southern Mirkwood, um, but that there was going to be now peace in the Greenwood, right? There was this, the, the elves were happy when they were returning home, not only because the dragon was dead, um, but because, uh, because the Greenwood was freed, right? Um, and the implication was it wasn't going to be Mirkwood anymore. It was going to become Greenwood again. And that was great, right? That was one of the several places where peace was established and it looked like we were passing from a land of dark, you know, from a time of darkness to a time of greater peace and happiness, right? Um, we certainly saw that around the Lonely Mountain, right? With the Lonely Mountain and Dale and the reestablishment of the kingdom under the mountain. Then we saw that in Mirkwood. Then we saw that with Bjorn, right? And the Woodman. Um, so, and there was more peace in the Misty Mountains in that most of the goblins were dead, right? So that was a, that, that was a win. Uh, so, so what we were seeing at the end of The Hobbit was peace breaking out all over the place, right? Um, the, uh, the, the problem here, though, right? So we're alluding to this. That story has come around, and you've got to think that that story has got to be an encouraging story, right? Um, you know, what are we coming to in the Shire? Better times, apparently, right? Not directly for the Shire. That's all way far out over on the other side of the mountain, right? Uh, and, you know, hobbits to, to, to hobbits for whom the other side of the river is strange and foreign territory. They're not going to care too much what's going on, on the other side of the, Misty, uh, of the Misty Mountains. But apparently they heard the news, right? Um, and so now notice what we get here is this sense of the hopeful news of time past has now been undermined, right? Um, this, what looked like an upward trend and what was emphatically an upward trend at the end of The Hobbit turns out to be short-lived, right? Uh, only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. And that's a double whammy. Right. Not only did the whole driving out of the necromancer thing not seem to work all that well, but it also um, it's it's not it's not just that. Right. It's worse than that. Um, it's now reappearing in the old strongholds of Mordor. So so again, it's, it's it's not just that the necromancer was not defeated, in fact, but that now the old stories, which everyone thought were gone, are going to start coming again, right? And now we're talking about the enemy and the land of Mordor again, which we haven't done for a really long time. So yeah, it's, um, it's, that's a big deal, right? Now what's the other, um, uh, the other Hobbit reference? I think that, I, I, I think I saw a couple of you mention it. Yes, exactly. Um, the trolls. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons, no longer dull with it, right? That's a reference to the Hobbit trolls. We're familiar with trolls, right? Unless, so trolls were abroad, unless you think like, well, come on, you know, I mean, how bad are William and Tom and Bert, right? Um, I, you know, if you're thinking that direct, no, these are not, you know, these are not Cockney trolls anymore, right? 
Um, these are cunning trolls armed with dreadful weapons. Uh, you remember, of course, the trolls, Bilbo's trolls, were not armed with any weapons, right? Um, yeah, so, um, so anyway, yeah, so there's, um, um, an, so what's the effect of this direct connection with The Hobbit, right? We, the readers are being told, we, we, we hear The Hobbits overhearing this stuff, right? They're hearing rumors about these things. Orcs are multiplying again in the mountains, right? So those goblins that died, right? You know, the, the, the goblins that were almost wiped out are back, right? The trolls are abroad again, and they're worse than before, right? Um, so again, even if we think we know where we are, right? We've read The Hobbit. We've come to the happy ending of The Hobbit, and we can see that happy ending being actively, being actively undone, right? Um, yeah, good. Um, you know, uh, Grim Dragon asks, how much of this lore is general knowledge in the Shire? Are there maps that common Shire folk would have access to to give them a sense of where Mordor is? Or is this just far off, a far off nebulous place? It seems like the latter, a far off nebulous place. I mean, that's, notice they talk about it, uh, away far east and south, there were wars and growing fear, right? So this is not like a, you know, there's war on the frontier, the Shire is in danger. That's not the call here, right? They're just hearing stories that somewhere away off south and east, right? Far away, this is happening, but it's disturbing, right? And it's disturbing not because necessarily they care what goes on way far away east and south, but because of the old stories, right? They've heard stories of the land of Mordor. Those are shadows in the background of their, of their memories, right? And now, um, now it's coming again, right? Um, yeah, okay. Let's, uh, with this in mind, let's now look at the conversation that, that Sam and Ted Sandiman have in The Green Dragon. Um, thinking about the, the kind of stories that the hobbits tell and the kind of current events, right, that they appear to be talking about. Oh, and by the way, quickly, somebody had asked, does, uh, is, is Frodo the only one getting this news? Or do, is, it seems that hobbits in general are getting this, right? Uh, Frodo is seeking out this news much more actively than the rest of them. Um, but the previous passage was talking about hobbits in general. Um, okay. The conversation in the Green Dragon at Bywater one evening in the spring of Frodo's 50th year showed that even in the comfortable heart of the Shire, rumors had been heard, though most hobbits still laughed at them. Sam Gamgee was sitting in one corner near the fire, and opposite him was Ted Sandyman, the miller's son, and there were various other rustic hobbits listening to their talk. "'Queer things you do here these days, to be sure,' said Sam. "'Ah,' said Ted, "'you do, if you listen. But I can hear fireside tales and children's stories at home if I want to.' No doubt you can, retorted Sam, and I dare say there's more truth in some of them than you reckon. Who invented the stories anyway? Take dragons now. No, thank ye, said Ted. I won't. I heard tell of them when I was a youngster, but there's no call to believe in them now. There's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's green, he said, getting a general laugh. Okay. I think there are a few fairly remarkable observations that we can make about the opening of this, uh, uh, of this exchange, right? Um, first, notice the general trend about fireside tales and children's stories, right? Um, 
the, the, the initial subject of conversation here is about news, about the things you hear these days, right? And in a sense, they're having a debate about like the sort of genre classification of the things that you hear these days, right? Um, so um, let's back up a second. Remember the first version of the debate, right? Between the gaffer and Sandyman back in chapter one. If you remember, the thing that they were talking about was also about news, right? It was about gossip, but very different, right? Very different from what we get here. Um, there we had the, the, the gaffer's recollections and welcome demand, right? Leading up to Bilbo's party. And so he was holding forth at the ivy bush I love that uh, that that phrase. That's where that's where the, the gaffer would hold forth, right? Um, he didn't discuss so much as lecture, right? The gaffer, um, but he's retailing news, right? His own recollections, the things that he's heard. Of course, the story that comes up, which they're very delighted to talk about again, right? Is about uh, Frodo's orphaning, right, and the death of Frodo's parents. And you'll recall that the the the, the strife the tension that happened between gaffer and between the gaffer and sandiman um was over sandiman's sort of dragging the whole gossip thing down to the level of slander right um talking about pushing and pulling actually accusing uh drogo uh and primula of you know killing each other right that according to the gaffer was totally not cool though gossip seemed to be perfectly fine um, so the question there was, what constitutes like legitimate news to retell, right? Here, there's a similar kind of disagreement between Sam and Ted. That is about what kind of news is legitimate and what's okay to sort of talk about. But the context is now completely different. It's not about local gossip and family history anymore. Now it's about foreign affairs, right? Um, the news that they seem to be getting uh, from, uh, from, from dwarves, right? Um, and it's not just Fro Frodo seeks out the dwarves, but it's not just Frodo that talks. The dwarves don't talk to the hobbits much, but they do some, right? It's it's I. It is clear from these passages we've been looking at so far that it's not just Frodo who knows this stuff. We can see here, um, Sam. Queer things you do here these days, to be sure. Ah, you do if you listen, says Ted. Right now, this shows us that he doesn't want to hear them. Right, he is not listening to them, but he's heard them. Notice his response is not, "What the heck are you talking about, Sam? I haven't heard anything." That's not what he says. Right, he is dismissive of the news. Right, of the things that you do here these days, but he doesn't disagree that it has happened. And notice what he does again is not just to reject it in the sense of saying, "I haven't heard it" or "I don't care to hear it." Instead, what he says is, I can hear fireside tales and children's stories at home if I want to. In other words, the news is unreliable. It is fantasy. It's the kind of fantasy that's only good for children's stories and fireside tales. Now, first of all, this itself is kind of interesting, right? The fact that, like, uh, Ted Sandiman heard fireside tales and stories when he was a child that were kind of like this, right? So... Did Ted Sandyman then, was Ted Sandyman told stories about the land of Mordor, say, right? Uh, and the Last Alliance, maybe? 
Is that a story in wide and insufficiently wide circulation in the Shire that Sandyman would be familiar with it and classify it as a children's story? Right now, you know, there's no there's no call to uh, uh, to believe in them now. He says, right? You know, he heard tell of dragons, for instance, when he was a youngster. Again, before we move on, let's observe the significance of the fact that Ted Sandyman was told stories about dragons when he was a youngster, right? I mean, that's kind of not a not a given, except we've seen evidence of that all the way through, all the way through The Hobbit as well, not just the fact that The Hobbit was a dragon story and the fact that when Bilbo is initially told about the dragon in his Hobbit hole, right, in chapter one of The Hobbit, he already has associations about dragons, right? He's clearly heard dragon stories as he immediately imagines the dragon coming down and, you know, setting fire to things on the hill and stuff, right? He, he, he's heard stories about the depredations of dragons. Um, uh, he doesn't like them. They're much too adventurous, but he's heard them. Um, and he certainly doesn't like the idea of their coming true. But also remember, um, uh, every worm has its weakness, right? Who said that? Who said, from whom does the quotation, every worm has its weakness, come from? Exactly. Bungo. Bungo Baggins. Bilbo quotes it, Right. You know, remember, that's the one where he actually draws attention to this. He says, every worm has its weak spot, as my father used to say, though not, I am sure, from personal experience, right? Um, exactly, exactly. So Bilbo says it, but he's quoting his dad. He's quoting boring, respectable Bungo Baggins. Clearly, there are stories about dragons. So, and that that's stable from the beginning. Ted has heard them, right? Now, there's no call to believe in them now. They're stories that you grow out of, right? And so apparently the stories that he's heard about the Dark Lord and Mordor and whatever, he classifies in the same way, right? So that now that those are being evoked, that's probably in the context in which we're getting this, that's presumably what Sam is referring to when he says queer things you do here these days to be sure, right? And Sam is immediately, dis and Ted rather, is immediately dismissive. But again, the way in which he's dismissive is kind of interesting, Um uh, there's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's green, he said, getting a general laugh. Um, so notice there's actually sort of a second point that Ted is making there, right? His first point is, that's childish stuff. There's no point in taking that stuff seriously because we're grown-ups now, right? But at the same time, notice how he's also distancing it. Right? It's, it's not relevant, right? It's not relevant to Bywater. Um, there's no call to believe in dragons now. And then it's almost like uh, uh, the, 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 the next sentence, one way in which I think we can understand Ted's last sentence there is, even if there were dragons, right? Who cares, right? There's none around here. It's not, it's, not, it's not an issue to us. Why should we care? So first of all, there's no call to believe in them, right? Um, which is, by the way, I think an interesting way for him to say it, right? There's no call to believe in them. Um, that is, I don't see good reason. He doesn't actively say, like, um, but I know now that those tales are nonsense, right? He says there's no call to believe in them, right? I don't have any active reason to believe in them. Um, and one of the reasons he has no active reason to believe in them is that there's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's green, right? Again, the fact that the pub in Bywater is called the Green Dragon shows how prevalent dragon stories must be, 
among hobbits that or they wouldn't even have it but but anyway so so on the one hand it's there but it's also not there it's theoretical it's distant right distant both in terms of his own life that is distant to his childhood not to his adult life but more importantly geographically distant right even if there are dragons you know so i don't i i the, I don't really necessarily believe that there are dragons, and even if I did, who cares, right? Because there aren't any in Bywater. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Gilgalir, I agree, um, and I know several people were pointing this out too, that uh, um, Ted's attitude does sound very much like the Victorian attitude towards fairy tales. Uh, yes, of course, if you know other, uh, um, other Tolkien stuff, if you've read Tolkien's on fairy stories, you will have heard Tolkien attack this general perspective that Ted is voicing here, uh, associating fantasy and fairy tales with uh, childhood and children's stories. Um, so we know that this is something that Tolkien uh, very emphatically himself does not agree with, you know, that he's, uh, um, that he's giving, that he's putting in the mouth of Ted here. Um, yeah, okay, so, but notice Ted wins round one of their debate. Right? Everybody agrees with Ted. And notice all that Sam has said. He's just brought it up. Queer things you do here these days, to be sure. Right? Um, he, and uh, like his dad before him, this, he seems to want to talk about something. Right? Um, just as, 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 as the gaffer was just itching to retell the story. Right? Of Drogo and Primula. Uh, so Sam is itching to talk about the things that you do here these days. Right? He wants to talk about the current stories and rumors and ted just tries to to quash it right you do if you listen in other words if you're a fool right why would you listen um no point now notice sam's next turn is to say is to ask a really good question right who invented the stories anyway right why do we all tell stories about dragons why do we know all these stories about dragons? Why is this pub called the Green Dragon if there was never any dragon, right? Uh, these stories must come from somewhere. Somebody must have invented these stories, and that that, invent, that invention must have been for a reason, right? This is a this is a great argument by Sam, but Ted, again, merely tries to shut him down, right? First, his first move was, you do if you listen. His second move, you know, is, is to pounce on Sam's turn of phrase, right? Who invented the stories? Take dragons now, right? Take dragons now is clearly a, 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 a transitional gambit, right? Take dragons now, says Sam, meaning to transition to the subject of dragons. And Ted just refuses. No, thank you. I won't take dragons, right? And he rejects the idea of dragons, right? Uh, so the first thing that we can notice about the conversation between the, about their two different positions, Sam wants to talk about it and Ted totally doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but again, in his rejection, we can see a sort of a framework of acceptance, if you see what I mean. Again, everybody does tell these stories. He acknowledges that he did know these stories when he was a kid. He just has tried to distance himself from them over time. So. Uh, so the main difference between them is that Sam wants to think about them and Ted doesn't, right? All right. All right, said Sam, laughing with the rest. But what about these tree men, these giants as you might call them? They do say that one bigger than a tree was seen up away beyond the North Moors not long back. Who's they? My cousin Hal, for one. He works for Mr. Boffin at Overhill and goes up to the North Farthing for the hunting. He saw one. 
says he did, perhaps. Your Hal's always saying he's seen things, and maybe he sees things that ain't there. But this one was as big as an elm tree, and walking, walking seven yards to a stride if it was an inch. Then I bet it wasn't an inch. What he saw was an elm tree, as like as not. But this one was walking, I tell you, and there ain't no elm tree on the North Moors. Then Hal can't have seen one, said Ted. There was some laughing and clapping. The audience seemed to think that Ted had scored a point. Um, okay, so what do we see here? Let's see. Um, oh, interesting. Erethard is asking, uh, do I think the gaffer's holding forth has to do with his personality or his station? I wonder if being a gardener in the Shire was an important thing, especially as Bilbo's gardener. He might be the purveyor of odd news simply by association. Maybe. I, I, I think, of course, we know that the gaffer had a particular platform to hold forth at that particular moment, right? Because with a party coming up, anybody who can give reminiscences of, uh, you know, Mr. Bilbo, um, their reminiscences were in welcome demand. And the gaffer is clearly a local authority, right? Uh, you know, among all of the other hobbits, especially the other hobbits at his, uh, you know, sort of at his social level there down at the pub, he's got the closest connection to Bag End of any of them, right? And has more personal experience and, uh, you know, eyewitness testimony than anybody else. So that gives him the right to hold forth, certainly. It's also clearly a personality thing. I think definitely a personality thing. Um, but, um, uh, but as far as, like, him being important because he's a gardener, I don't know. I. Uh, Frodo will say as much later on that gardeners are honored. Um, maybe. So I mean, you know, I mean, I guess we can take Frodo's word for it. Um, is he as important as the Miller? I doubt it. Because again, the Miller has a uh, has an you know has a has a really significant position as I talked about. We've got a monopoly as I talked about before. Um, but that's a really uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, good. Gilgir was just recalling that same thing, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice... Um, <laughs> yeah. Freida, I completely agree with you. Freida says, when I run into someone who argues like Ted Sandyman does, uh, and I sometimes do in real life in political debates, I find it very annoying. It makes me dislike Ted Sandyman so much more. I completely agree with you there. Um, notice the difference between their approaches, right? Sam is continually trying to adduce evidence, right? Uh, he produces a witness. Who's seen them, right? No, he can give you somebody who has seen them right? My cousin Hal, for one, right? Uh, he goes up to the North Farthing, he's been there, and he saw one. Um, and then we have, that's met with skepticism, right? Um, and then he says, you know, no, he can't have been mistaken, right? <clears throat> Sam now gives the reasons to believe that Hal can't have been mistaken, right? He, uh, he was as, he was as big, it was as big as an elm tree, right? So it's not like he could have missed it, right? Um, or mistaken it for something else. <clears throat> and it was walking seven yards to a stride. Right? That's a long ways, right? You know, 20 feet per stride, that sucker's going to be moving, right? So it's not like you're going to mistake a tree moving 20 yards a stride, 
for a stationary tree, right? You know, it's not like, a, is that thing moving? I'm not sure. When you look at it from this angle, it kind of looks like it's moving. Like he saw it and it was trucking along. Um, so again, Sam is producing some really good evidence, right? Um, and again, he's met merely with skepticism by Ted. And again, notice not only skepticism, but skepticism, which is seizing upon Sam's figures of speech. Just like, you know, take dragons now, right? He does it again. Seven yards to a stride if it was an inch. Then I bet it wasn't an inch, right? Um, and uh, again, like, so, he, you know, Sam tries to dismiss it. It was just an elm tree. Um, and Sam then produces what sounds like a really great argument. There aren't any elm trees on the North Moors, right? Then how can't have seen one, said Ted. Um, you know, Ted twists that around to be evidence to support his skepticism, right? Um, it is really uh, frustrating. Um, it is really frustrating. Um, but uh, but that's part of the thing being dramatized here, right? Ted's whole outlook on life. And this, to me, is the really important thing about this debate, right? It's not the facts of the debate so much. We can learn some interesting things, like about the stories about dragons plainly in circulation in the Shire, but uh, more than that, we get... Sam and Ted, um, I also was mixing up their names, um, Sam and Ted really are clearly representing two different ways of looking at the world, right? Um, I mean, I know that that might seem a, a somewhat kind of melodramatic way to say it, but, um, but clearly I think it's, it's, it's true. Um, Hal refuses even to consider any evidence, no matter how much evidence Sam brings forward. Um, he's made a pretty good case, right? It won't necessarily convince a skeptic. Obviously it doesn't, right? But it's equally obvious that Ted is not interested in evidence. He's not weighed the evidence and decided against it. He is unwilling to consider any evidence, no matter what, right? Um, but let's back up here for a second. Exactly, James. Ted doesn't want to know about strange things. Absolutely. Um, and yes, uh, as Grim Dragon says, it's not skepticism so much as it's willful ignorance. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, he's not interested in logic uh, uh, at all. Um, okay, so... Um, another interesting point here. Think about Sam's transition. Why, did, why are we talking about walking trees? Right? Um, well... Remember, if we if we back up for a second, right? It started with queer things you do here these days, to be sure, right? Um, you know, so he and again from Sam, that was a pure transitional gambit again, right? He's just trying to start up a conversation about like let's start, let's chew over the weird, you know, the strange news that we have heard, the rumors that we've all heard, right? Sam wants to do that. Ted doesn't want to do that, right? And Sam is trying to defend the fact that queer tales do exist, right? You, you do hear queer things, right? You can't just say, there's nothing strange going on. There's nothing worth talking about. That's the point that Sam is kind of backing up now to defend. Um, so he's, first he tries dragons, right? Take dragons now. No, no, we're not going to go there, right? Who invented the stories anyway? No, not interested in where the stories came from. Okay, okay. So Sam's second attempt, right? Sam's second attempt is, what about these tree men? These giants, as you might call them. They do say that one bigger than a tree was seen up away beyond the north. So now he's going to point to a specific P-1000 
piece of queer, you know, a, a specific queer thing that you might hear these days, right? Um, a, a, a story that has been circulated, right? This is, this is a thing that exists. So he cites it, right? Surely you heard the rumor about the, the giants, right, up on the North Moors, right? Um, and this, I think, is, by the way, a really interesting transitional point, right? A really, a really interesting uh, move by Sam because he is, um, he's backing off from stories and legends, right? Like about dragons to something local. Remember, he's in a sense responding to what Ted just said. There's only one dragon in Bywater and that's green, right? Um, I don't care about stories about dragons in foreign lands. Who cares? Who cares if there are dragons over there or not? Not relevant, right? Okay, fine. How about something local, right? Something that, that my cousin said he heard right here in the Shire, right? So see, there you go. There's, 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 there's queer things happening right here in our own Shire. Um, and Ted doesn't want to hear about that either. But now notice he can't make the same defense, right? There's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's green. All he can stick with is, as you guys were saying, his, uh, his willful ignorance right his insistence upon his uh um uh his his ignorance um and yes gilder he he does end up attacking the messenger here um but it's interesting to me ted wins again right ted takes round two also then how can't have seen one right logic doesn't seem to be a Ted doesn't care about logic, nor does it seem to be a strong point of the audience, right? Notice they're not really interested in hearing about the evidence either, right? Um, so let's keep going. All the same, said Sam, you can't deny that others besides our Halfast have seen queer folk crossing the Shire. Crossing it, mind you. There are more that are turned back at the borders. The bounders have never been so busy before. Again, notice Sam's still trying to establish. He just wanted to talk about the weird rumors, right? And now here he is on the defensive, having to prove that there are weird rumors, right? And that there might even be anything to talk about. Um, and so he comes back with all the same you can't deny, right? It's not just my cousin Hal, right? If you want to dismiss Hal and not believe anything that he says, then uh, you can't. So so he goes. he comes to a... A, 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 a piece of queer news even closer to home than the North than the North Moors, right? And that is queer folk crossing the Shire. Crossing it, mind you. There are more that are turned back at the borders. The bounders have never been so busy before. There's objective evidence to support this, right? Multiple sources. You can't surely, Ted, you're not gonna say that all of the bounders are totally unreliable, right? Clearly, if the bounders are so busy turning folks back at the borders, and, and, and despite that, there are still queer folk that have been seen by many, right, crossing the Shire, um, there's something strange here, right? There's something, there's something odd uh, going on. And uh, uh, Millie, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Guibrella, I, I, that's a great question. She asks, who would the bounders turn back? Suspicious-looking dwarves? You maybe, maybe. Uh, my bigger question, Guibrella, is 
how do the Pounders turn anybody back? I mean, okay, maybe if like one of the Bree Hobbits wanted to come in to like Journey in the Shire and the Bounder was like, ah, no, I'm not letting you in, man. Maybe they could prevail upon them. But seriously, if like a dwarvish merchant is going, if like a dwarf is coming on a, a long journey from Erebor to, you know, to the Blue Mountains... And the bounders are like, dude, sorry, man, you can't come. Is the dwarf really going to be like, okay, I'll go around the Shire? Maybe. Men? Is I mean, like, who's going to listen to the bounders? That's what I don't understand. Um, uh, but, uh, um, uh, but yeah, that's 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 uh, that's uh, uh, we're not we're not really told who exactly it is that. Uh, um, that they turn back. <clears throat> but anyway, there are queer folk crossing the Shire, though. Uh, really, not just not just queer like the people in Buckland, right? But seriously strange people. And I've heard tell that elves are moving west. They do say they are going to the harbors, out away beyond the White Towers. Sam waved his arm vaguely. Neither he nor any of them knew how far it was to the sea, past the old towers beyond the western borders of the Shire. But it was an old tradition that away over there stood the Grey Havens, from which at times elven ships set sail never to return. Okay, so keep in mind now this is Sam's longest speech so far, right? You know, he's, he's attempted twice to talk about queer tales, right? And, and evidently like to give some reasons to take them seriously, whether it be, uh, you know, consider who told the stories about dragons and where those stories must have come from if there are no dragons, right? From that to the more specific, the sightings of walking trees in the North Moors to now uh, much more common, right? Okay, there are lots more strangers crossing the Shire, right? Many people have seen them. The Bounders have reported that they're busy, so this is happening. And many transitions to the Elves. The Elves are moving west. They're going to the harbors out away beyond the White Towers. What's he referring to? An old tradition that away over there stood the Grey Havens, from which at times elven ships set sail never to return. Now, so this sounds like something that you would have heard Fireside Tales about, right? Ted might have heard Fireside Tales about the Grey Havens and the elven ships and the elves that go to the harbors and sail away and never return, right? Um, when, he was a, when he was a kid, Ted may very well have heard stories about that kind of thing, right? But, um, what's his reaction here, right? We've seen what he did with that before. He acknowledged the existence of the stories, right, but said there was no call to go believing in them now. Sam continues, They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They are going into the west and leaving us, said Sam, half chanting the words, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. But Ted laughed. Well, that isn't anything new if you believe the old tales, and I don't see what it matters to me or you. Let them sail, but I warrant that you haven't seen them doing it, nor anyone else in the Shire. Okay, now, first, before, of course, we get to, um, uh, before we get to Ted's response, Sam's still not done, right? He alludes to the fact that elves are moving west, right, going to the harbors, just like in the old stories. And then he passes into this sort of poetical revel reverie. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. 
They are going into the West and leaving us. Notice the rhythm of that. It's poetry, right? That's two lines of poetry that Sam just said. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They are going into the West and leaving us. Has Sam written poetry about the passing of the elves? It kind of sounds like he has, right? And Sam, this is an interesting argumentative move for Sam, right? Um, but in a sense, you can't blame him, right? He tried empirical evidence in his previous, in round two, and that didn't work, right? Uh, uh, Ted wasn't interested in evidence, so now we're, get, we're getting poetry instead. Now he's practically talking to himself. Since no one will rise to the bait and discuss the, these rumors, it's like he's discussing it with himself now. Now this is passed into something almost like a solitary reverie, right? As he's quoting these two lines of poetry. Um, uh, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. And I love the point um, uh, that you made. Who made that point? Um, let's see. Oh, darn it, I've missed it. Um, and uh, yes, Archimago, I agree that the, the, the chant does sound very Bilbo-esque. Yes, yes. Um, I agree. Um, yes, Gilgalir is pointing to the sound of that, uh, how sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea, the, the, the alliteration on the S, right, the sibilance there, um, sounds like the waves on the shore, right, absolutely. Um, as John Osclaus says, sadly for Sam, Ted is as prosy as he believes himself to be. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so let's see, darn it. Um, ah, there it was. It was, uh, Holmes Aggie who said it was a, uh, the pointing out the classic Tolkien rhythm, uh, in this paragraph, this long flowing sentence, uh, followed by a really curt one, but Ted laughed. Yes. The, but Ted laughed is a classic piece of, uh, Tolkien, uh, uh, rhetoric there. Absolutely. Um, good, good. Um, oh, by the way, so I, and I didn't even address it. I probably should. Um, we might as well. Um, I'm not going to make you wait until like mid 2018 when we get to Treebeard in uh, the two towers. Um, uh, somebody was asking about the walking tree. What do we think was really happening there? Was, was that a, was that a horn? Probably. I think it's an ant. Um, I suspect it's a, it's a searching. First of all, <clears throat> the fact that the word strides is used, um, the horns don't really walk like that. Like that is like the whole forest of horns kind of move, but it's really, we don't see them like pick up their legs and walk, whereas with the ants, the strides of the ant, of course, is really pronounced. Um, so that image of, you know, seven yards to a stride, if it was an inch, sounds very much like an ant stride, right? Um, though I don't necessarily think we can take that as an objective measure for the ant stride. It was probably not quite 21 feet uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the stride. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, um, but given what we're told about ant strides later on, I think it's likely to be um, so anyway, yeah, I do think, I do think that it was, uh, my, my vote is for Ent, not Huon, um, and probably an Ent 
you know, like maybe even looking around for the uh, for the antwives here. There were there were there were years in my in my life when I was younger when I really 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 wanted this passage to be a piece of evidence that the antwives survived, right? Um, and that the walking tree in the northern part of the Shire is really an antwife, uh, and that Treebeard would find out about it and it would mean that it was. But uh, it's 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 not. It's totally not an antwife. Um, clearly. Even if just because it's an it's it's an elm tree, right? Um, the uh, entwives were flowering, and like fruit bearing trees and stuff, so they wouldn't be an elm. That would be an ent. Um, but uh, yes, yes. Um, anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, no. So I don't think it would. Uh, I, I I don't think it would be. It would it would be an entwife. I would love it to be, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, anyway, uh, but, but I do think it's likely to be an ent who already had the idea that Treebeard had, that the ent, the ent wives might like that country and would go looking for them there. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's true that you never know, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm scared. All of the evidence is against it, it seems to me. I mean, just based on the fact, the whole elm tree thing and the, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would look like an elm tree. But of course, Treebeard doesn't know what they would look like. So, you know, can't absolutely rule it out, but I don't think it was an elm tree. Um, like I said, I, I, there were many years, but I was holding out. Like I, 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 I resisted the evidence against that as strongly as Ted Sandyman for a long time. Um, but in the end, I can't, I can't fight it anymore. So say, again, Sam, uh, rather than continuing to cite sources and back up his claims with evidence, Sam is doing his thing, right? Uh, he's now either composing spontaneously poetry about the elves sailing uh, uh, into the West, or he is reciting, perhaps unwisely, a couple of verses that he himself had previously written about elves sailing away into the West. Um, and uh, uh, and Ted's response, his laughter, right? He laughs at Sam, not surprising. Um, but what he says is a little surprising. Well, that isn't anything new if you believe the old tales. Interesting. So Ted acknowledges having heard the stories again, right? Now, he did that before. Um, uh, but he doesn't just say, this is all nonsense. He says, that isn't anything new. So of all the frustrating things, when he finally gets Ted Sandyman to admit that there is something, there is a queer piece of news to talk about, what's Ted's rebuttal? Yeah, it's queer, but it ain't news, right? It's nothing new, right? If you believe that, it's always been happening, whatever, right? Barely even interesting. Um, and how frustrating is that, right? Ted still refuses to talk about it, right? Um, it's not news, and I don't see what it matters to me or you. Here he's returning to the, like, there's only one dragon in Bywater and that's green argument, right? Let them sail. But I warrant you haven't seen them doing it. Um, he still does question the evidence, right? I bet you can't prove that they really are. He seems open to the idea that they're, he just doesn't care, right? It doesn't matter. And this, in the end, seems to be Ted's final argument about why we just don't need to talk about this, right? I refuse to rise to discussing this stuff because um, it, it's, it doesn't matter, right? Um, 
in a sense, that's even worse than just disagreeing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I gotta keep going. Well, I don't know, said Th Sam thoughtfully. He believed he had once seen an elf in the woods and still hoped to see more one day. Of all the legends that he had heard in his early years, such fragments of tales and half-remembered stories about the elves as the hobbits knew had always moved him most deeply. There are some even in these parts as know the fair folk and gets news of them, he said. There's Mr. Baggins now that I work for. He told me that they were sailing and he knows a bit about elves. And old Mr. Bilbo knew more. Many's the talk I had with him when I was a little lad. Oh, they're both cracked, said Ted. Leastaways, old Bilbo was cracked and Frodo's cracking. If that's where you get your news from, you'll never want for moonshine. Well, friends, I'm off home. You're good elf. He drained his mug and went out noisily. Okay. Um, Sam almost goes so far as sharing what is clearly one of his most treasured memories, right? Uh, the moment when he thought he had seen an elf in the woods, right? Um, and he's had his eye out ever since, right? Hoping to see more elves in the woods. In a sense, you get the sense almost that this is kind of where he was hoping the talk would lead eventually anyway, right? Um, about the people heading west across the Shire and like maybe it's elves and maybe other people have heard them, which would give him hope for seeing more, right? Um, he points to... Um, Mr. Frodo and Mr. Bilbo, right? They're authorities about elves, and uh, they say, they confirm that this is happening, right? Um, notice how Sam is sort of revealing what is really personally meaningful to him. Ted now falls back on ad hominem, right? Uh, that he, uh, um, uh, yeah, Gilgul are good. Gilgur notices that Sam heard these stories when he was a little lad, right? Um, but of course, the difference, right, is that Sam clearly does still feel that there's a call to believe in them now, right? He heard them when he was a lad because that's when Bilbo was around. Bilbo left when he was still a little lad, um, a relatively little lad. I mean, he couldn't have been, what, in his teens, maybe, maybe 20-ish at the farewell party, um, Bilbo's farewell party. So, so yeah, Sam was only a lad. Uh, when uh, he used to hear stories from Mr. Bilbo. But he still believes those stories, right? Um, instead of feeling that there is this separation between the world of stories that he heard when he was a kid and the life that he lives now, right? Sam believes the most important gap, I would say, the most important difference between Sam and Ted Sandiman is that one of them thinks that the, they've both heard the same children's stories, one of them believes that those stories are not only true, but relevant, right, to their current lives. And Ted Sandyman doesn't, right? Um, and he dismisses the queer news that Sam wants to talk about as moonshine, right? If that's where you get your news from, you'll never want for moonshine, right? Um, because they're crazy, those Bagginses, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, several, a couple of people were asking about moonshine. Ambrosius 
and yeah, uh, was the homemade distilled alcohol definition of the word moonshine. Is that an English thing? Or is that a strictly Americanism? Because I think that's just an Americanism. I don't think that that's really on the table as something that uh, um, that Ted could mean when he says this. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, 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 I and, and somebody look it up. Uh, and you can let me know. I mean, look up the, um, look up the, the, um, look up moonshine in the OED and see where they get their quotations from and look at the alcohol definition of moonshine and see where they get their quotations from and see if any of them, uh, are, you know, non-American sources prior to, you know, prior to 1900, uh, and see what, see what happens there. Um, cause I suspect that's not the case. I don't think he's thinking about alcohol at all. He's thinking about moonshine. He's thinking about the radiance of the moon. And remember what what effect does the moonshine have on people? Right? Does it make them drunk? What does it make them? Yeah, lunatics. Exactly. It makes them lunatics. It creates it induces lunacy, right? The 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 moon is associated with insanity, right? Um and that's what he was just talking about, right? They're cracked, right? And so what you get from them is moonshine, which is interesting, right? Um, you'll never want for moonshine. And again, remember, moonshine is what makes you crazy, right? It's not the product of crazy. It's the producer of crazy, right? So he's here getting digging at Sam, right? Bilbo is cracked and Frodo's cracking. If you get news from there, you're next, buddy, right? Or maybe you already are cracked. And yes, I do believe, Gilgoyer, that, uh, that, that this is the word crazy or crazed means cracked. That crazed and cracked are synonyms. Um, a craze is a crack. Um, so to call somebody crazy and to call them cracked is that those are synonyms, right? Um, that's where the, that's how it is through this expression, they're cracked, um, meaning insane, right? That they're cracks you know, in their heads or brains, um, that, uh, that's, that's where, that's how the word crazy came to mean, uh, you know, lunatic in the way that it, that it, that it, that it currently does. Um, so, um, so anyway, so that's, so, so when he's, when he says you'll, you'll never want for moonshine, he's saying like, if you keep listening to that, you're going to go crazy too. Or again, maybe you already have, right? Um, so, that's interesting, but yes, Ambrosius. It is interesting, right? Uh, um, it's it's ironic, as Ambrosius Aurelianus says, uh, Ted using moonshine for crazy talk, considering how important moonlight and starlight are to the elves. Exactly. Notice the huge culture shift there, and it's very much in line. The idea that Ted is invoking these really those medieval traditions um, about the moon inducing insanity, right? Um, the elves know better, right? And their relationship to the moon is very different. And their view of moonlight is very different. And Frodo's view, you know, Frodo and Bilbo's view of moonlight, because they know a bit about elves, right? Um, yeah. I mean, of course, Sam kind of gives himself away by calling them the fair folk, 
right? Kind of shows what stories he's heard and that he obviously still kind of takes it, takes them seriously, right? Um, aha, Sarah, thank you. Sarah Lagarde did look it up in the OED and it, it does explicitly refer to the alcohol, the illicitly distilled or smuggled alcohol definition as a North American definition. I, I was almost sure of it. I was almost sure that that was an Americanism. Um, so it would not be appropriate to think of the alcohol moonshine here. Um, even though it kind of seems to fit in a way, right? Um, it would kind of make sense, but it's, um, it's clearly not what Tolkien had in mind there. Um, all right, let's keep going. We're running out of time. I want to look at Frodo at least briefly here. But in the meantime, the general opinion in the neighborhood, this is now back to the beginning of the chapter, was that Bilbo, who had always been rather cracked, had at last gone quite mad and had run off into the blue. There he had undoubtedly fallen into a pool or a river and come to a tragic but hardly an untimely end. The blame was mostly laid on Gandalf. Uh, and of course we saw the, uh, the, the, the Winter Festival play that was mostly laying the blame on Gandalf. Now, um, notice the thing that's interesting to me here, the Shire Hobbits make up a narrative, right? They, they, they have this all figured out. They know what must have happened, right? Um, he'd run off, he'd gone quite mad and run off into the blue, and they even make an end, they even write an ending to his story, right? It's not, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Rather, it is undoubtedly he fell into a pool or a river and came to a tragic but hardly an untimely end, right? Um, but this wraps, wraps things up nicely for them, right? Um, and they blame, they blame Gandalf for the story that they made up themselves, right? If only that dratted wizard will leave young Frodo alone, perhaps he'll settle down and grow some hobbit sense, they said. And to all appearances, the wizard did leave Frodo alone, and he did settle down. But the growth of hobbit sense was not very noticeable. Indeed, he at once began to carry on Bilbo's reputation for oddity. He refused to go into mourning, and the next year he gave a party in honor of Bilbo's 112th birthday, which he called a hundredweight feast. But that was short of the mark, for twenty guests were invited, and there were several meals at which it snowed food and rained drink, as the hobbits say. Some folk were rather shocked, but Frodo kept up the custom of giving Bilbo's birthday party year after year until they got used to it. He said that he did not think Bilbo was dead. When they asked, where is he then? He shrugged his shoulders. Look at the gap between Frodo and the perspective of the rest of the book. They uh, conclude that he's obviously gone mad, right? It's the only explanation for how he could play that ridiculous prank and, in fact, run away, right? Leaving all this stuff behind, you know, all those uh, those gifts and, uh, and notes for people and everything. Obviously, he's gone quite mad, right? And now, undoubtedly, I, I, I noticed the, the end that they that they give to him. What is the consensus cause of death for Bilbo? Drowning, right? He, he must have drowned, right? Uh, that, that makes perfect sense, right? Because if you go wandering out in foreign places, there are going to be rivers and pools and things like that. And those things are dangerous. Ask Gaffer Gamgee. He'll be able to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Bilbo must have been drowned at Gilgalir. I totally agree. Um, so they make up this narrative the shocking thing about Frodo is that he doesn't comply with it, right? Um, you know, he, he, he does settle down, but he doesn't grow hobbit sense. He doesn't conform. 
he, be, he remains odd. And the way in which he's odd is refusing to go along with... The, nobody has any evidence for what happened to Bilbo, right? They're all insisting that he must be dead. Frodo could respond by saying, you thought he was dead the last time he went away, right? And he wasn't. So what makes you think he's dead now? But Frodo doesn't make that argument, right? He just ignores them and continues celebrating the sort of independence that Frodo shows to Hobbit culture is the first thing that we really see about him. Even his unwillingness to, again, when they ask him straight up, right? Well, if he's not dead, where is he? Right? He shrugs his shoulders. No idea. Uh, but he just refuses to go along with this sort of corporate fantasy of his being drowned, right? So what else makes Frodo weird? Frodo went tramping over the Shire with them, but more often he, that is his, his uh, younger friends, but more often he wandered by himself, and to the amazement of sensible folk, he was sometimes seen far from home, walking in the hills and woods under the starlight. Merry and Pippin suspected that he visited the elves at times, as Bilbo had done. Now this is really interesting to me. What makes him odd? What is in what you know? What is one example that we're told of how he's like? What makes his neighbors look at him funny? Nighttime walks. To the amazement, sensible folk are amazed that he's sometimes seen far from home, walking in the hills and woods under the starlight. I mean, apparently that's weird, right? Um, I I I call this passage the Hamfast standard. Uh, which I don't mean as an insult to the gaffer. That's, of course, his name. Um, but it's what the, the gaffer's name means. Uh, hemfast. Um, it means homebody, home dweller, uh, someone who sticks close to the home, right? Um, it's like parochial is the gaffer's first name, <laughs> okay? Um, and this seems to be... So, like, anybody who wanders off by himself... Um, but again, the, 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 the thing that is cited as being the particular cause of amazement is him just being, he's walking far from home, right? He's not traveling abroad. He's not leaving the Shire. He's not sailing around in boats. But uh, what he is doing is just wandering around um, under the starlight, if you can believe it, right? This just seems, it, it struck me because this is very tame, really tame, right? Um as far as deviations from society go, and yet amazement, we're told, that this uh, that this brings up. And of course, Valori, absolutely, elves walk under the starlight, right? He's acting elf-like. Is that the reason for the amazement? Do the do the hobbits avoid walking in the starlight because they have some of those old stories about elves and are afraid they might meet one, right? You know, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, people are asking, so, so who is seeing him, uh, walking out alone? Well, presumably people who live in those places that are far from his house, right? So like a farmer might be out at night, you know, doing his chores or, you know, uh, like coming in from like milking the cows late one night and see Mr. Frodo wandering off, you know, over the fields and, you know, far away from Hobbiton could totally happen. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Valori says they're probably hobbits looking out their window to see if anyone's being odd, right? N nothing, nothing could be more likely. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Holger, nosy hobbits. It's exactly nosy hobbits uh, that are uh, uh, that would that would do that. Um, well, let's um, just a, just one more, and then we'll, we'll we'll end after this. Frodo himself, after the first shock, found that being his own master and the Mister Baggins of Bag End was rather pleasant. For some years he was quite happy and did not worry much about the future, but half unknown to himself, the regret that he had not gone with Bilbo was steadily growing. He found himself wondering at times, especially in the autumn, about the wild lands and strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. He began to say to himself, Perhaps I shall cross the river myself one day, to which the other half of his mind always replied, Not yet. Now, um, let's be careful here. What's going on with Frodo? Right? Um, he's happy. He's settling in. Right? He's not worrying much about the future. Everything's fine. This regret that he had not gone with Bilbo is steadily growing. That seems totally normal. Right? He loved his uncle. And he misses him. So there are times when he regrets not going, uh, not going with him. Sure. Yeah, fine. Um, he found himself wondering about the wild lands. Well, sure, that's likely to happen, right? A nephew of Bilbo's who, you know, grew up on Bilbo's stories. And, uh, and, and now, of course, he's, he's, he's missing Bilbo and remembering Bilbo and thinking Bilbo is off, you know, having more of his adventures and out traveling. And so, you know, especially in the autumn around Bilbo's birthday, right, when he's thinking about Bilbo in particular, um, you know, he'll wonder about the wild lands and imagine maybe, but then notice that, that, that next bit can just slip right past you and strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. What? Really? He has dreams, dreams about mountains he had never seen. Now that could just be fantasy, right? That is like, you know, he's having daydream. He's heard stories about mountains, right? So he's pictured mountains. So he's probably picturing mountains that, you know, he's never seen them because he's not gotten to travel yet. So it's just fantasy, right? Um, maybe, maybe we will have reasons later to suspect that Frodo's dreams are more than that, right? That Frodo, this is not just fantasy by Frodo. Um, pay attention to Frodo's dreams. This is the first evidence that we get of them. And if it is, so let's, again, if, if in our first time through, there's no reason for this passage necessarily. It just sounds like daydreaming, right? Well, night dreaming, carrying on his daydreaming, right? But I'm going to kind of go out of order here and insist we have reason from later in the book to take this seriously, right? So let's pause for a second. Why? Why is he having dreams? Why is he, and not just dreams, strange visions, of mountains he had never seen. What mountains is he has having visions? Why is he having visions? How is he having visions? Who is sending visions? Is he being affected by the ring? Right? Do we have this, uh, and we notice his mind is divided into two halves, right? Perhaps I shall cross the river myself one day. And the other half of his mind says, not yet, right? Is this a yes-no thing, like Bilbo, right? the very early stages of the early stages of Gollum sickness, right? Is that, 
for the record, I don't think so. Um, is the ring trying to inspire him to wander out? It's possible. It's possible. I don't think we have enough evidence to draw any conclusions about this. But I don't think the strange visions of mountains he had never seen come from the ring. I don't believe that. Um, but I can't back that up yet. So I'm just going to have to put that out there, and we'll come back to this later on um, when we talk more about, when we see more of Frodo's dreams and talk about that. I don't think, uh, to me, this doesn't, this, doesn't, uh, this doesn't smell like the ring to me. Um, is the ring pushing him towards wanderlust, right? Tempting him to cross the river? Is that a ring-suggested idea? A ring-planted idea in his mind? And the other half of his mind, the part like Bilbo's half that wanted to say, yes, he wanted to get rid of the ring, is that the part saying, not yet? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, Freda says, who has the power to enter dreams? Well, it's interesting. Because there is one person that we know. Um, there's one person we know to be wandering around Middle-earth who does, in fact, bring strange visions and dreams into people's mind. It's what he does. It's his primary thing. Yeah, exactly, Gilgreer. Gandalf. That's his thing. That's what he does. The one reference Gandalf gets in the Silmarillion, that's what's described. That's his thing. He brings strange visions and dreams into people's minds. I'm not saying it's Gandalf sending him strange visions of mountains he'd never seen. Gandalf's far away, right? I'm just saying that that's... You asked who could do that? That's a person who could do that. Um, in other words, to answer the question more broadly, the Valar could do that, right? Um, not... Um, uh, would the ring do that? Is I don't think... This doesn't feel to me like the way the ring operates. Now, perhaps I shall cross the river myself one day. Maybe the ring is encouraging that. I'm willing to believe that that might be the ring. But the strange vision of the mountains, that's not the ring's style. Oh, I, but again, we as yet have no evidence to support this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this... Uh, I'm going to leave this aside here. Um, but, um, but, but yeah. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to... We'll see. We'll see. Um... All right, good. Well, let's um, let's stop there, and let's go on our field trip. Are we ready to are, are we ready to field trip? Let's go wandering about the Shire, shall we? Is this where I come in? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So, so we need to travel. So. So what I want to do... Right, I will jump down and break my leg. Yay! <laughs> I want to start... I want to start with the... Oh, by the way, I love that bird kite. Whoever's flying that that blue and green bird kite. It's just lovely. Anyway, um, I want to start in Hobbiton uh, tonight again. But I want... Let's, let's go to Mickledelving uh, first. It'd be easier. Okay. So let's just travel out yeah. to Mickledelving and then we can ride across the Hobbiton and start from there. There are hunters around who can, um, if there's any hunters here who are available to port people, come on up here and stand so folks can see you. But I think getting to Mickledelving should be pretty easy. 
Um, you either have a port there or you can get a horse at the stable. But if you are in a situation where neither of those work for you, we have a whole bunch of hunters up here. Who All right. Fellow with you and take you, take you there. Very good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna catch a quick horse to Mickledalving. So okay. I'm gonna go out and Sounds do some good. quick travel. All right. So my you. Okay. My, so yeah, your milestone is in Breeze. So if you're, if you're the person who just said that, come on up here and, and or tell, uh, send a tell to one of these hunters up here, and they'll follow up with you and they'll port you to Mickledalving, and then we can ride from there. Cool. All right. Oops, wait a second. Wrong direction. I want to go this way. <laughs> I don't want to get lost in the I just, I just, I didn't like come out with my back to the door. Anyway, I turned the wrong way. We're good now. We're going down the stairs to the west gate. Here we are. Down the scholar stair, around the corner, down the stretch they come. So we got everybody. Greetings. Wonderful turnout here on Gladden tonight. Great to see so many people joining us. All right, gonna go to Mickle Delving. So if you're gonna port directly or milestone, if you if you can get to Hobbiton, Hobbiton is where we can kind of group up. But um, okay, I'm gonna port out myself, and yeah. uh, hopefully you all will join us in Mickle Delving to ride. So. Dang it. Sorry. Having my traditional fun. Uh... Did you crash? Yes, it did. Oh, jeez. That's okay. I should reappear in Nickelbellin, I hope. Because I was in the midst of uh, quick traveling there. It's raining. Oh, it's raining in the shower? Yeah. Nothing like a dreary gray day. I guess it could be worse. It could be a dreary night. Okay, here I am in Nickeldale. Hello there. Hi, and fast tunnelly. I love that they have a tunnelly here in the Shire, because of course we're told uh, in the chapter about Bree that tunnelly is one of the names that they mention, one of the surnames they mention in Bree, um, and uh, and it's that that's an example of one of the natural names, right? That the hobbits consider a natural name, many of which were used in the Shire. Uh, so we we in fact do find a tunneling. All right, so here we're in Nickeldelving again, where we were last week as well. So I just want to uh, gallop out towards Hobbiton. We'll pass through Waymeet, which we also saw before, and uh, we will then get to Hobbiton. Um, what I want to do here to start off, I want to I want to start with that view that I keep talking about but not actually doing, uh, 
both of our last two field trips, I have said, just stand right up there at that junction of the road and look this direction, and this is what you'll see. So I just wanted to, since I'm going that way anyway, I'll pause there for just a second. All right. So here's Waymead again. And, you know, I think, the more I think about it, I think that the uh, uh, the Hobbit wagons here, you know, the sort of itinerant Hobbit settlement in Waymeet, seems like a really interesting play on the name, right? Of course, Waymeet just literally means the, the meeting of the two ways, right, where the roads intersect, which, of course, they do on the map uh, and there in Waymeet. Um, but, you know, the idea that, like, this is, uh, you know, like, the meeting of the ways of, of, like, traveling, you know, hobbits is kind of, you know, I like it. It's interesting. Okay. So here we are. Now, move, as you can see on the map, we are, we're now just north of Tuckborough and south of Hobbiton. And uh, this intersection is the one I kept pointing to from a distance. And, of course, it's raining so hard that we can't see the view that I was trying to uh, point to. Let's see if we can get it a little further down the hill. Yeah. Well, okay, it's a terrible day to try to see this particular view, sadly. Normally, you can see more of the hill up here in Bag End, but here with the mill down here and the, uh, um, the, the granaries over there and, and then Bagshot Row and Bag End, and the party tree, and then Bag End up on top. Um, this is the one where it seems like they're very self-consciously imitating that famous painting of Tolkien's. But, uh, okay. Hello there. Right. Hey, Bogo Chubb, and here we are in Hobbiton. Okay, so I think most people have had a chance to arrive here in Hobbiton. We uh, checked in at the Ivy Bush before. Um, we uh, might as well, actually, since we're here, let's pop over to the Green Dragon. See who's in the Green Dragon. Is anybody in the Green Dragon? Anybody interesting in the Green Dragon? I don't remember, but let's see. So it's interesting, by the way, that uh, um, Ted and Sam were meeting in the Green Dragon, right? While Gaffer and Sandyman were meeting in the Ivy Bush. Um, and as you can see, as is represented accurately here, um, the Ivy Bush is the local tavern, right? Uh, the Ivy Bush is the tavern that's just across the, the stream uh, from uh, uh, from Sandyman's house, and is just down the hill and across the stream uh, from the Gaffer's house. Um, so that is the local pub. This is down the road, right? It's a bit of a walk back home. Now, Bywater and Hobbiton, you know, are very close to each other. Um, so it's not like it's a it's it's not like it's a long journey or anything. Um, but this is why, of course, at the end of that scene, Sam is described as strolling along and, and whistling. He's got to walk all the way down the road uh, to Hobbiton. So it's kind of interesting to me that this is the place where, like, the cool young hobbits uh, uh, stay, right? Um, look what's happening over here in this corner by the fire. There's a fireside tale going on. There's a storyteller, a storyteller telling stories to three townspersons none of which conspicuously are children, which I find kind of interesting. But I love the fact that there's a fireside tale happening, right? That's really cool. Um, 
And by the way, this is the kind of thing, do I think that this is a mistake? I absolutely don't think that this is a coincidence. This is the kind of detail that, uh, that you can find throughout Notro, actually, if you look. Um, there was a reference to Fireside Tales in, uh, uh, in the, the chapter, you know, the, the, the episode in the story that took place in the Green Dragon. So we have a Fireside Tale uh, happening here. Um, I wonder... The tapestries. I never was able to figure out this tapestry. This is a, a river. Is this somebody fishing here? There's a boat and another person. And there's a house in the distance. I've always wondered what this tapestry was. And, and there's this other one too, which is similar, but not exactly the same. There's a, a bridge. Both of them involve water. Right now, of course, this is by water, so there's no shock there. Are these local images? This looks a little bit like the Bywater Bridge, kind of, right? Um, yeah, and John Osclass, by the way, I agree with you. I suspect that one reason that Sam and Ted and others drink at the Green Dragon is that the gaffer is holding forth at the Ivy Bush. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. If anyone else can think of a story that's associated with this, I've never been able to figure out this tapestry. If there's see there's a guy with a pack on his back, he's wearing a hat, and he's got a he's got a, he's carrying something over his shoulder, like he looks like a traveler. And he's come to this river and there's a city in the background. Right, I, I don't uh, I can't, I can't, I can't think. I'm just trying to, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to think if these tapestries would have anything to do. I mean, this, of course, is a standard Hobbit tapestry. You know, they're like Hobbit hole tapestry. And there's the dragon one, which, of course, is the green dragon. So there's pictures of a green dragon. And that doesn't seem too shocking, right? Um, more townspeople. I feel like we're interrupting, very emphatically interrupting a date here, uh, which is embarrassing. Um, well, here's another townsperson who is reading over here by the fire, right? Uh, one wonders what her book is about and if it contains any fireside tales of its own over here. I don't know. Well, that's kind of cool. So, um, and uh, Barmy, Barmy Rootnot. <laughs> <clears throat> Barmy is a great nickname. Uh, I wonder what his full name is. Barmy can't be his given name. It's got to be. It's a very Hobbit-like nickname. Um, but um, anyway, Rootnot is a great last name. A little botanical, right? But uh, not too botanical. Uh, anyway, all right. Cool. So, all right. So, we've we clearly come here to get away from our dads, right? Which is not shocking. Um, and... Uh, Oh, wait, I, I missed the sunflower, Erica. There's a seven-pointed sunflower. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Paisleia says uh, his real name might be Barma, Barmabus. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, very, 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 very likely. Very likely. Um, all right. Let's, let's head back to the hill.
Okay, so we, we're going to stroll back now. So presumably this is the way that Sam was strolling. Uh, now, there's a couple ways to cross the river. We can cross the rivers here, but then we'd have to trespass on somebody's fields, and that's kind of rude. So let's stick to the road, because, um, oh, we're civilized hobbits. This is where my son Matthias would insist that he was not a civilized hobbit. Um, uh, okay. Notice some of the, uh, notice over here, uh, this is a nosy hobbit, right, who's going around. There are two sort of classic Shire quests, or deeds, really, um, that you do early on uh, if you start a hobbit. And that is that you're asked to help, you're, you're, you're asked essentially to become a voluntary assistant postman, which I love. Um, and uh, do you get that title? Am I, am I correct in thinking that you get the title voluntary assistant postman? Um, if you complete the postmaster quests, somebody tell me that that's true. Um, if it's not, I'm going to lodge a complaint. I've never done it yet. I've, I've never gotten to complete that deed. But uh, um, uh, anyway, so uh, oh, the titles of the quick post—that's disappointing. It's that that they, they missed an opportunity. There's another opportunity there. I've got to say, their eye for detail is really good, but they've missed some good titles. Yeah, it really needs to be Voluntary Assistant Postman, clearly. If I could get the Voluntary Assistant Postman title, I would keep that for a long time. Anyway, so, um, but there are nosy hobbits running around, and the way, for those of you who haven't played, the way that the, 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 the post quests work is you go to the post office, and they give you a sack of mail that you have to carry to a post office at, an, at another town in the Shire, and you've got to run with it. So you're running with this, like, bag of mail, and you have to avoid the nosy hobbits, because if you meet a nosy hobbit in the road, he'll, like, take the mail off you and look at it so you fail the quest. If you, if you run it, you have to avoid the nosy hobbits. Um, and there's another similar quest in which you have to carry, you have to distribute pies, you have to deliver pies. So you're running around with these pies uh, to deliver them to people. And there are hungry hobbits also walking around on the pads. And if you meet a hungry hobbit, they'll apparently, like, pounce on you and grab your pie and eat it uh, in spite of your protests. Um, and actually, I think that both of these things really capture something about hobbit society. Neither one of those things, are, like, it shows their interest in news and gossip, and it shows their interest in pie. Um, and it also shows their kind of disregard for these kinds of social niceties, like they 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 will they 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 will not stick at reading people's mail apparently and they will uh, not stick at eating other people's pies um so that's you know that's uh, and, and and i i think that that's far from being slanderous to hobbits that seems to be actually very much the way that hobbits kind of carry on so anyway all right let's um let's head up the hill we've been here a couple times before we went to bag end last time um I want to pass by Bag End here today, and, uh, oh, dang it. Yeah. Might need to solve my Sierra stability issues. Well, my Lotro stability issues in Sierra. Um, Shall we go ahead and proceed to Overhill and wait for you there? Yeah, or? you can go ahead and wait for me at Overhill. I'll be right there. Okay. Just log back in and be there in just a second. The pounding of hooves in the game. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, it's quite a quite a crowd of uh, mounted people we've got there, right? Um, and yeah, Finn, exactly. Hobbits hobbits seem nice, and they are nice in some ways, right? But there there's definitely there's definitely non nice things about hobbits. Um, and you know, as I've said this many times before, people people tend to idealize the Shire and uh, and hobbits, but they are not. Tolkien does not depict them as being idealized. In fact, and I and I love the fact that uh, that Lotro gives that kind of an honest view of hobbits. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Okay, sorry. Here we are. All right, we're back. I'm back anyway. And I'm going to go around and see if that helps. I'm going to go through the woods. Over the edge of the hill. Oh, over the hill here. So there's the party field over to my left. Okay. All right. Gilgo, yeah, well, I'm back, exactly. I'm back. I'm, uh, uh, we won't get to well, I'm back for, uh, quite some time, I think. But, all right. Okay, so we're, to no, so remember, um, Overhill, Sam mentioned Overhill, right? Um, that his cousin Halfast works for Mr. Boffin in Overhill, right? Um, so here we are in the Bind Bowl Wood. I'm sorry, everybody. It's kind of always hit or miss. Sometimes it does this and sometimes it doesn't. I don't think it's an issue of my graphics levels or anything like that. It's 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 just a stability as I said it's a it's a it's an OS stability issue. I might have to might have to do my work around to avoid this. Might have to invest in a more significant workaround for these sessions. But um, yeah, it's true. It doesn't take too long to get back in. Yeah, it happens. It it, it happens in transitions uh, between uh, areas, as you'll notice. Like when I right when I'm crossing into a new region, is when it does its thing. Um, yeah, Jonas Goss says, as a resident of a small town, I recognize the nice, quiet, unassuming nature of hobbits, along with the noisy, annoying aspect of them as well. Yeah, exactly. The good with the bad, right? Um, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> so with a clash of symbols, uh, I'm back here in, uh, uh, in Overhill. Um, now, where's Mr. Boffin? Mr. Mr. Boffin is here, isn't he? Somebody find Mr. Boffin. I can't turn my floaty names on because there's too many people. Where's Mr. Boffin? He, he, he's around, isn't he? Where is he? Somebody finds the horses on, on balancing on chimneys and various things like that. Um, uh, oh, Gammer Boffin is here, right? Okay, okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's uh, let's let's head up north where walking trees can be found. Let's sort of explore. So notice what we have here in Overhill, right? Um, uh, uh, Hal goes up to the north farthing for the hunting, 
right? Um, but he works here in Overhill. Um, Overhill is a working community here, right? Notice what we get, right? We get uh, piles of lumber, right? Little, in little construction areas. Uh, we get uh, picnic pavilions, right? Which is nice. Um, wow, congrats on the jumping on top of the pavilion. Oh, did you get there from the chimney? Wow, man, that is some serious skills. I could never have gotten up there. Um, but uh, but yeah, so we see it's like a craft, it's, it's like a carpenter woodcutter's area, right? And again, this is this is one of the really fun things that Locher does in populating the map. The map of the Shire emulates the you know it's it's copied from the map that Tolkien included in the book. Um, but again, most of these things are just named. We can see Overhill and the Bind Bowl Wood um, on the Shire map. So we we know all we know about Overhill, right? is that Mr. Boffin works there, and it's in the middle of the Bindbowl Woods, so they make it a working community, but a working woodland community, so it's a foresting and carpentry community. Makes perfect sense to me, right? Okay, so, um, but let's go, let's go north. We won't actually be able to spot a walking tree. There is a walking tree up here, um, but in order to get access to the walking tree, you have to do several pre preliminary uh, uh, quests, which... Um, I don't, uh, which we didn't have time to do here. Uh, but, um, but yeah, several people here are gathered in the, oh, so uh, several people are already partaking in the hunting as well, right? Killing, uh, killing bears and things. Um, where's the entrance to the, to where the walking tree is? Isn't that a little more, a little more to the, to the west from here? Or is it down in the gutter? It's been a long time since I've been up here. Oh yes, the bears. There are lots of bears up here. Um, the bears, of course, bring up an interesting point, as does the... That's, that's, I'm pretty sure it's over here. Past all the bears. Who the bears of Bindbowl would are going to be having a particularly bad day today. But, um, but yeah, if... Come over this way. Which is the direction I want to go anyway? Oops. Yeah. Have okay, I come to a precipice? Yes, I have. But it's the precipice that I want to come to. That's okay. Slide down here. Here. All right. Yes, here it is. <laughs> the sound of breaking ankles. Lobs Grove, indeed. Okay. Because, yeah, we can't actually get all the way through, right? I don't think we can. Um, notice we have a bit of a giant spider infestation up here, which is a piece of news which Sam has apparently not heard about yet, right? Um, purists will object to this, right? Like, there would be giant spider infestations in the Shire, and I agree in that way it's a little bit of a stretch. Um... Because, of course, there's no evidence of giant, sp giant spider outbreaks, right, anywhere in the Shire. But um, the quest that they give you, and here he is, the walking tree. He's not walking currently. Uh, we have to activate him with the quest, and if we do, he'll shamble with us and try to escape. Because he's trapped in here. If you look closely at him, the story in the quest line is that he sees he's guys like crawling with these little spiders, which have bound him up. Um, and you kind of set him for you notice his branches are all choked, his leaves are all choked with uh, uh, with um, uh, 
uh, spider webs as well. So you set him free from the spiders, and then he, he, he escapes, and you have to guard him from the spiders as he goes out. And as several people are always reminding me, in my Grifflet stream, Grifflet uh, notably failed this quest, and the, the tree was killed. The walking tree was killed by the spiders. Uh, and we have never forgotten the moment the, uh, the, the moment when you had to escort the walking tree out in Grifflet failed. Um, but I think oh, it just twitched. You see the walking tree just twitch. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, uh, the, the spider, so back to the spiders. Why do we have spiders? Well, this is clearly one of the moments where the sort of the circumstances of Lotro building a game, you know, a video game world and needing video game antagonists, right? Needing monsters for you to fight in the Shire. Uh, in, you know, there's, I think, a very significant, a very noteworthy number of non-combat quests in the Shire, right? You do, can do a lot of delivering mail and delivering pies and then finding out, gasp, that the pies were accidentally cooked with bad berries, and so they're like nasty pies, and so you've got to go back and reclaim the pies and figure out what went wrong in the cooking of the pies. Like, there's a lot of that kind of quest uh, in the Shire, which is very Hobbit-like, but at the same time, it's a video game. And, you know, people want and, and you know, it's, it is an expectation that you're going to have combat in this kind of dangerous quest. So they need enemies. And all of the enemies that they include in the Shire are enemies which are, like, known enemies of hobbits, right? They're, they're things, you know, of course, no, they're not true to how the book describes the Shire, but they are true to what hobbits, in fact, do in the books. So what enemies do we get in the Shire? We get wolves, right? We get places where you have wolf problems breaking out, uh, you know, like over in, uh, um, uh, what's it called? Budgeford, right? Um, there are, and there are spider infestations, right? Giant spider infestations, which are new, like recent, right? So they, they try to kind of temporize with it to be like, well, this broke out in the North Farthing after Frodo and Sam left the Shire. So maybe it is, right? Maybe they are. Uh, they, they did come in and it just didn't get a mention, right? Uh, that's kind of a stretch, right? Um, but again, like, why spiders? Well, because at least spiders were, you know, Bilbo's enemies. We have Bilbo fighting spiders. And so, you know, there's, there's at least some kind of distant um, precedent for, uh, uh, for spider combat, right? Uh, uh, not in the Shire, but at least by hobbits. Um, uh, and brigands, yeah, you do get brigands uh, as well, and and uh, um, and uh, goblins, right? There are goblins, and not only any goblins, but goblins from Mount Graham, that is the descendants of the followers of Golfimble, uh, whom uh, uh, Bullroar took defeated in the ancient battle. Um, so every piece of Hobbit history that comes up in the book is mentioned, right? Is you know is brought in to the Shire quests. Um, it is a little forced how they do what they do with spiders, but it's okay. I like it. And you knew the walking tree. The walking tree is one of the things I came looking for, right? Um, the first time I started playing the game and I was wandering around, I'm like, there better be a, a walking tree in, in the North Farthing, right? So I went to the North Farthing hunting after, uh, uh, after the walking tree and was delighted when I found it. Um, of course, when I tried with my guardian to protect him, I succeeded very easily. Uh, so I didn't always end up with the death of the walking tree. Um, but, uh, all right. 
So we're heading back through the spider webs. We're gonna, I want to I want to head out to the west to another area of the Shire, which is again another place merely um, mentioned on the map, but about which we know nothing, but concerning which have been made some kind of interesting extrapolations and have been included uh, some kind of interesting stories. So I want to go to the Rushik Bog and to the town of Needle Hall. Again, both of those on the Shire map, but we know nothing more about them, almost nothing more about them uh, than is on the map. Certainly we never encounter them. They're never alluded to in the narrative, right? But they're here in the Shire and they must be. So notice how we have, of course, descending country, right, down to the lowlands of the bog. Notice what that was. That's a grumpy dwarf, right? A dour hand trapper, right? So there are these uh, these unclean looking, you know, sort of uh, dirty and uh, nasty looking dwarves hanging out here in the bog. There are lots of nasty slugs and flies here. Um, there's also this one hill in the middle of the bog. Let's see, where's the hill in the middle of the bog? Isn't it? Where's the troll hill? This way, right? I want to go to the. Uh, I want to go to the stone. To the to the to the stone troll. We know that hobbits tell stories about trolls, not only because Bilbo encountered trolls and told the story of the trolls, and we know that he told the story of the trolls and that the young hobbits really like it, but of course. Bilbo himself had heard stories about trolls, right? When he saw the trolls in The Hobbit, his reaction was, but they were trolls, obviously trolls, right? So trolls are clearly like dragons uh, uh, and elves sailing off to the west. Trolls are clearly a thing, right, in Hobbit culture. So over here in the Rushik Bog, they have this stone statue of a troll, obviously a relic from <laughs> a lot of people getting their horses up on the trolls. Uh, obviously a relic from some time when this stone troll came down and invaded the Rushik Bog, but was caught by sunlight uh, here on this hill, which is now called Trolls Knoll, which is a great name for a hill. Trolls Knoll is perfect. Um, and um, uh, yeah, er Aerotheric is saying that you can find an occasional actual troll uh, here that will spawn by night every now and again. Um, indeed, because of course the quest that you that brings you to Trolls Knoll uh, starts in Needle Hall, and one of the local uh, farmers in Needle Hall uh, is missing his cow. Um, his cow, what's her name? Marigold? Is that the name of the cow? Anyway, the, uh, the cow um, uh, went missing, right? And he wants to know what happened to his cow, so you go looking for his cow and you find the corpse, the chewed up corpse of his cow, not far from here, uh, and you go back and you report that his cow is dead and it was eaten by, it seems to have been attacked by some kind of enormous creature, some kind of enormous animal. Um, and uh, eventually you track it to the fact, it's a little bit of a spoiler on the quest chain, that there's another actual troll. But it's not just a random troll that has come wandering down. It is a troll which is, uh, it's another stone troll which has been captured by these 
dwarves, which are wandering around. These 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 wicked dwarves. We find when we meet dwarves here, uh, way out here in the west farthing, we find that some of these dwarves are pretty bad lots, right? To quote the Hobbit, and uh, they've they've got this stone troll that they keep and they're bringing north with them. Uh, they're sending north rather uh, to Angmar, uh, and sometimes they're letting it out. And apparently, it's eating livestock. Uh, so this, you know, of course, ties into the overall big story. But um, um, but this idea of you know of, of of planting this kind of a relic here, right? Of having this this stone statue of a because again, there have to be legends. This is where uh, th this would be a tourist spot, right? Uh, if there were a stone troll like this, and why mightn't there be? We know they have stories about trolls. And uh, the idea that they, uh, you know, come from places like this makes perfect sense. Let's head over to uh, Needle Hall, the town of Needle Hall. We know that Needle Hall is near the, near the Russic Bog, but there is one other thing that we can deduce from just from Tolkien's Shire map, which they make great use of in their depiction of Needle Hall in the game. So here we're, notice we're following the road. Right? And this is not a track, this is, not, this is a paved road that we're following, right? A main trail, unlike some of the off-roading uh, off we've been doing here prior to that. Notice it's a nice bridge, right? Not a little archy, the, the one by Bywater is like an archy, swoopy bridge, obviously made by hobbits. Um, this is a very well-constructed bridge. This gateway, in the, this gate in the hedge, is very hobbity, right? Nice round gateway. We come here, what do we find in Needle Hall? Bunch of hobbit houses. Notice that the hobbit houses here are not covered with turf, but they're covered with, what are these, slate roofs? Are they, you think? What am I, I'm stuck underneath the trellis. Okay, there we go. Slate roofs, you think? Or wood? But of course it would make sense that they wouldn't be covered with turf because we're right next to the bog, right? And so there's not going to be quite so much turf uh, here, um, nor are there nice hills for them to set it in. So they've got these more of these houses which are designed to look like holes. But up the hill here, we have, whoa, a totally non-Hobbit building. What is going on here? Well, of course, this belongs to dwarves. Here's Ulfar. The supplier, right? This is a dwarvish trading post here, a permanent dwarvish building. And we can see evidence of more outlandish construction. Look at that bridge, right? Look at the difference between the architecture of this hobbit house here and the architecture of that bridge, right? Outlandish, that's what I call that, right? Um, this looks like a dwarf bridge. Um, why? Well, of course, look where Needlehoe is on the map, right? This is the way to go to Arid Lewin, to the Blue Mountains. This is where the dwarf road comes. This gets the only thing we know about Needlehoe on the map. We've got the, the East Road, which comes into the Shire, across the Brandywine Bridge, past Stock, through Bywater and Hobbiton, but then it turns at Waymeet. The road to Mickle Delving is, of course, a major road within the Shire. Right? But that's not where the dwarves go. This is a dead end as far as the dwarves are concerned. No, at Waymeet, the dwarves turn north and head across the bog on a little, there's a causeway, right, that the road goes on. 
and, uh, and then up to Needlehall and out through across the bridge to the Arid Lewin. This is like the last stop or the first stop, depending on which direction you're going as a dwarf, right, through the Shire. And so we see the evidence of greater dwarvish construction and a dwarvish trading post actually made here, right, with a semi-permanent dwarvish settlement. And, so, and this is where we get sort of the center of these dwarf stories. And we find, of course, the dwarves are outlandish people from the Hobbit standpoint. But an interesting thing that I think the Lotro people did is, of course, it turns out that many, not all, but many of the dwarves um, that are in this region and coming down from the arid land are indeed untrustworthy and in league with the enemy. Um, and so you, uh, you end up doing, you know, quests where you're fighting against, you know, the evil dwarves and what they're planning and plotting here and what they're, you know, the thieving that they're doing in, you know, from local hobbits and, and, uh, you know, recovering stolen property and that kind of, that kind of quest. Um, so, uh, it's interesting to me that the Lotro people made the choice to, in a sense, justify the parochial outlook of the hobbits. If the hobbits distrusted dwarves, well, now the hobbits who live in this region have even more reason to distrust dwarves, though we don't see, when you interact with the hobbits around here, they don't just like unilaterally um, speak ill of dwarves. You know, there's not like active blanket racism against dwarves around here. But they're not sure about these dwarves, and they have reason not to be sure about these dwarves. Because, and again, this is something that we hear from the, that we hear from the Hobbit itself, right? Um, uh, there are, you know, some dwarves are are decent enough folk, like Thorin and company, right? If you don't expect too much, remember that. Um, so, if you don't expect too much from your dwarves, they have a, a a very shrewd idea of the value of money, and what do we see? A trading post, naturally, right? Um, they don't value hobbits very much. Um, they don't think much of hobbits. But, uh, but hobbits do grow food, right? And that's useful to traveling. Hello dwarves. there. Hey, yeah, just uh, hending Gamgee. Look, it's a Gamgee. Excellent. Look, it's a Gamgee. Of course it's a Gamgee up here in the North Farthing, right? The Gamgees are originally from the North Farthing, so that makes all kinds of sense. Distant relation. Um... Not to mention Sam himself has a big family, and not all of them live down uh, live down Hobbiton Way. Um, you know, his cousin Hal, right, who lives up in the North Farthing. Um, and he has brothers who live up here, too. Older brothers. Sam is the youngest son, is the youngest son of, uh, of the gaffer. Not the youngest child, but the youngest son. Oh, yeah. Gravity was just pointing to the Gamgee uh, working the stables. Yeah, very cool. All right, so... Um, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna stop at Needle. I've kept you guys way late here tonight, um, so we should uh, we should leave it here for now. Um, next week we're going to continue chapter two. We might get several more pages into chapter two. Um, we are going to be starting the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf um, next time. So uh, um, uh, do do make sure that you review the discussion between Gandalf and and, and Frodo. Um, next week, we're going to be back on the Landreval server. Thanks again uh, to uh, uh, to the residents of the Gladden server, the awesome turnout here on Gladden, and uh, uh, and specifically uh, to the Rangers of the West uh, kinship for hosting us here this evening. Um, next week, as I said, we're going to be on Landreval, so plan on Landreval next week, and uh, and more more chapter two.
uh, that's where we'll be. I think I'm not 100% sure yet where the field trip is going to be, uh, but we'll be uh, we'll be we'll be uh, I'll be I'll be releasing some rumors about that. You can uh, you can wait for news on that uh, for uh, for a couple days. So uh, anyway, thanks everybody for joining me. This is a really fun fourth class, and I look forward to class number five next week. See you next week, everybody. Bye now.